The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day, everyone, and welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, coming to you from the traffic-snarled studios of WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia. We're streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And you can reach the show at Boomer Generation Radio at gmail.com and like us on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And a reminder that all these shows are podcasted on my website, jewishsacredaging.com. We will be back with our first segment guest, Dr. Jeannie Walker, just off the plane from the wilds of Alaska. Came right, came right here to the studio. Polar bears, everything are here. And we'll be back right after this message from our friend at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, Visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to our first segment here on Boomer Generation Radio. Dr. Jeannie Walker is our first guest. She's a professor at the University of Delaware in the English Department and with the Seattle Pacific University's Low Residency Master of Fine Arts program. So welcome, Dr. Walker. Thank you for joining us here on Boomer Generation Radio. Nice to see you. Thank you for having me. So you just literally, I, I think you just told me a day yesterday, got off a plane. You were teaching in Alaska in a fishing village. Why and what? I was teaching adults who had gone there from, who had come there from all over the United States to teach, to write poetry. Um, they came there for, it was kind of a spiritual retreat as well, but, um, my role was to teach, um, the craft of poetry and we had a blast. We worked all morning for five or six days and in the afternoon we took fishing trips and went out to see bears and whales and dolphins and things like that. So you are a poet uh, and you've written the book, one of your, your recent book is called... Helping the Morning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G, not the other one. Helping the Morning, um, available on Amazon, and I would imagine at, at, at good bookstores around the country. You have this uh, passion for poetry. And um, so I, I really want to explore this because it's it, – there. Am, am I wrong that there are not that many people, poets, running around the country right now that, that get a lot of press and – get a lot of action, but why poetry? What is it about poetry that speaks to your soul? What I love about poetry and what I find irresistible is it's um, a chance to slow down. It's pretty compressed speech, but I do think it is human speech, the kind of speech that we all use, especially little children, um, talking metaphors, and um, 
in other countries, I find, I mean, I do a lot of traveling sometimes to speak. Um, in Romania, when I was there to do a conference, to keynote at a conference, I found out there is a saying that every Romanian is a poet. And that's more true in places like, I would say, everywhere I've been, Israel, Romania, uh, Sweden, even in England. Um, and what it does for you, what it does for me, what poetry does for me is it slows me down. It makes me think about the world as a place which is not simply literal, but which also has some kind of <clears throat> spiritual, um, roots. It, it's a way of meditating, I think, um, to reflect on uh, something other than the literal and to grasp that we are more than what we do or what we produce. So we were talking a little bit before we went on air, and, and, and you mentioned the, this linkage of poetry and meditation and also the fact that as an observer and a professor, a uh, teacher of not only uh, college-age students but older adults, baby boomers, that you seem – that. The, the world society seems to be moving to much more literal interpretation and poetry opens the door to metaphor. Could you just expound on that? What, what do you mean by that? Are we getting too literal in this country? I think that we in this country are very involved with consumer goods. We're very interested in having more and more things. I notice across from the gym where I work out in the morning – um, there are storage units that are being built. We buy things and we love things, and I love things too. I love beautiful things especially. But we are very attached to physical objects, and sometimes it's hard for us to look past those. And the other thing I think it's more and more true of our culture in the last 25 years is it has become very speedy. We're extremely – I was getting gasoline yesterday, and I, I was extremely irritated at the fact that before I could get gasoline, I had to type in my zip code. Oh, on the machine, it, right. Yeah, you know, it can take you all of three minutes to buy a gasoline. And when you find yourself getting frustrated and irritated because you – you know, things aren't going quite as fast as you want them to go. I think we all have that experience. The speed of the culture is getting perhaps beyond what we were born for, we can tolerate. And poetry gives you a chance to slow down and meditate. Well, if you want to slow down, you can try the roads today. So you're not going to go anyplace very, very yeah, the very president's fast at all. in town. So yeah. You write um, in in one of the things we were, you said you 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 gave me before the show that writing poetry um, is is a way of distilling wisdom after a lifetime of experience. What does that mean? Um, uh, well, there are young poets who distill wisdom as well. I think that poet. For example, after when I was teaching a class, a workshop, um, when we all emerged at 9.30 and discovered that the, the trade towers had been hit mm-hmm. um, on 9-11. And I noticed after that 
<clears throat> for um, several months, people were reading W.H. Auden's war poems. People were reading a lot of poetry when there is a crisis or when there is um, a desperate need. People often go to poetry, and I think it's because it distills wisdom um, about what it means to be human, about what we need as human beings and what's at our core. Can you teach someone how to be a poet, or does it have, or does someone have to have some sort of innate spiritual presence that you can then teach them how to express that? Well, that's a really good question. That's a wonderful question. I think that if people can't make metaphor or can't see metaphor, can't see that a tree is something besides the physical object of a tree that you can knock on its trunk, you can saw off one of its limbs, all that is true. But the literal world also expresses a kind of spiritual reality, and if people can't see that and can't manipulate that, can't you, uh, put that into their work, there's, I, then I can't teach them how. Um, but most people really do understand that. It's a question of, of can they be quiet still enough, long enough, to be able to figure out the craft of how to do that. Uh, poetry is spirituality? I think that there is a lot of, um, there is a sense in which poetry can release spirituality in the same way as music can, in the same way as watching a great ballet or, uh, you know, there are many different ways of expressing and understanding spirituality and poetry is one of those. Is that ways. because a poet, a, a poem, will touch a, a person's soul or feelings in ways that, like you said, perhaps a symphony or a piece of music or or being part of nature will. I mean, there are different pathways to everybody's soul. Absolutely. I, yeah, absolutely. And poetry is one of those ways. And I, you know, obviously people who can't read are not going to be touched by poetry, but uh, they w- they may be touched by nature. They may be touched by music. Um, so poetry is one of those pathways, and I think uh, it's an important one. In your teaching, like the, you just came off the, at, at, in, in Alaska, are you finding a lot of older people, baby boomers, coming back, wanting to be creative, want to touch something that they've never, they've always wanted to do this, but I never had the time and now I have the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. I, I think that is, is absolutely bingo right on. Um, for years, uh, the University of Delaware has a center for lifelong learning. And because down there in Delaware, there are so many chemists and physicists and people who work at DuPont and Hercules and places like that, um, the, those guys, when they retire and their wives and, and, and women who've been very active all their lives, either raising children or, or, and probably working, um, when they retire, one of the things they want to do is go back and write their life story or, or start reading and writing poetry. And, and I've spent a lot of time with those people. I usually go several times a semester and, I, I would say people, retirees, are very interested um, in those kinds of 
skills, developing those skills, both at reading and writing. Yeah. Here's a maybe a politically incorrect question, but in your te- – I mean, you've been doing this for a couple of years. Um, who see – who seems to be coming to you more to learn about writing and being involved with poetry, men or women? Oh, man. Well, I would say that uh, women are probably slightly more likely to, but, boy, at that Center for Lifelong Learning, for example, there were as many men as there were women. Um, And I think men are very interested in that, too. Do they write different types of poems? No, I don't really? think that's true. Really? I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't think poems are the nature of the poem is necessarily gender determined. And yeah. how many of those poems, just, just playing with this, the, as, as people evolve as poets, are those poems like when people write really windows to their own soul? Um, I think that people are expressing uh, lots of times what's happened to them in their lives, their biographies, and they are trying to figure out the meaning. What what happened to me when yeah. I was, was, was alive, when I lived through these things? And that in some way, yeah, does lead to the question, what what does it mean to be human? What has it meant for me to live my life? Yeah, it's, yeah? it's, it's some of the basic – in other words, it comes back to those basic – Questions of meaning and purpose that, yeah. that we're, we always struggle with. We're, we are with Dr. Jeannie Walker, professor of, uh, in the English department, at the University of Delaware, and also the Seattle Pacific University's low residency master of fine arts program, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, we're going to take a couple seconds and hear from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back again to our first segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio with Dr. Jeannie Walker, poetess. That's the correct word, right? Poetess. That's it. And, you and, can, and, sure. You know, yeah. Po- or poet. Poet is poet. gender neutral. You can use that. Yep. Absolutely. So uh, you also, this Seattle Pacific University Low Residency Master of Fine Arts program, which is a lot to say, you also teach in that. Is that like... Um, like what you were doing in Alaska? What is that? Cause I- it is very similar to what I was doing in Alaska, except it's a two-year accredited program. Oh, so okay. when people get out, um, I mean, it's a very intensive program. So that students in poetry, for example, need to read 60 books of poetry during the course of that two years and annotate those books of poetry, which means write a brief essay on each one of them, analyzing the the work. And they need to put together a creative thesis of poetry, which means that's 25 or between 35 and 40 poems. And so they have a degree when they get out, and they also have very intensive work, you know, in 
workshopping and craft talks and lectures and talks from readings from poets, both their faculty and people who come in from the outside. So when you sit down and write poetry, so you have your book, um, what motivates you? Do, are, do you wait for inspiration to write a poem? Is it, uh, you know, how, what what gets you uh, in the mood to write? Well, I mean, I think if I waited to be in the mood to write, I would probably never write because I <laughs> always have to water plants or go get groceries right, right. or have it's always something to do. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah, but. Um, it's a question of discipline. It's, it, you know, I, I often think about Bach, who we visited Leipzig, where he was um, employed as a church musician. He had to get music ready for every week. It just so happens that we believe some of that music is the greatest music that was ever written. And so the question is, I mean, we, he, it's, I also need to sit down and write poetry. And what usually, what I do is, you know, when I'm walking around or, or teaching or doing whatever I have to do, um, I scribble down phrases or I scribble down words or I scribble down metaphors and I throw them all in a wicker basket and when I am ready to write, I just grab a handful of them and see how they rub together and start start a poem from that. So give me a poem that, that you got out of that wicker basket and sat down and put together. Okay, I'm going to read a poem called Gift. And I want to say just before I read it, um, particularly at this historical moment, um, human beings are, we have, have need both to, uh, we, I think we fear other people and we uh, become sometimes, um, uh, you know, Easily we vilify anybody who's not like us. On the other hand, we have a deep need, human beings, all of us, I certainly do, for community, for, for connection with people, for bonds, for love. This gift poem that I'm going to read <coughs> is, a, is actually about that. Um, I'm in the car, I'm driving. For a hundred miles, the fields have worn beards of ugly stubble and night is falling. And you can't find a lover not on AM or FM. And the hand at the toll booth wears a glove so as not to touch you. You pay for yourself, then the car behind you. So someone pushing headlights through the heavy dark will feel luck go off like a Roman candle, so she'll give a car length to the maniac who cuts her off. And you, there in your lonely bubble, can think of each taillight, each anonymous fender as a friend. That's from Helping the Morning, right? Right. That's from your book, yeah. Helping the Morning, New and Selected Poems, published in 2014 on Amazon. And there's a website 
to for this? My website is J is uh, Jeannie Murray Walker um, dot com. And you can get a hold of me if you want to at jwalker at u-d-e-l dot e-d-u. If you want to to get a copy of the monthly newsletter that I send out, I'd be happy to sign you up for that. Um, The newsletter usually has a very short blog, a poem, and there's this feature, what books I'm reading. And, and I also ask people who are reading the newsletter to email me, and we get a discussion going about what books other people are reading. So it's a good place to um, find poetry books. Do you Are you involved with you – know, I know there are book groups that people read you know, novels or nonfiction. Poetry book poetry groups – People, like, like, are, they, are you involved with any of those? I am, and I workshop with several poets around the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, they're very fine poets who have published a lot of work. But it's possible to get a group of people together. Um, there are a lot of us who have book groups, but you can also get together a group of poetry readers, right. three or four people who meet maybe for an hour and a half once a month or something like that. Um, choose a book. Uh, you can take turns, rotate choosing a book, and um, get back together and talk about it. What What did you think? Well, you were read read some of the poems aloud. Um, so yeah, book groups with poetry, great. Give me your three favorite poets. At the moment, at, well, right? Of course, at the moment. Because they know. really change. No, no, no. I mean, yeah. I'm, you may have had different poets when, you know, when you were 10. Yeah. And, but now you're not 10. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at that. Even so. a year ago, mm-hmm. you know, boy, you just, okay. So there's a Nobel Prize winner, Swedish poet, wonderful translation by a, a Norwegian. His name is Thomas Tronstromer. And to let you know how ubiquitous poetry is in Sweden, I asked waitresses who I should read, and they told me to read him. Mm. Well, he's one of my favorite poets now. One of our greatest living poets is W.S. Merwin, who is um, has just won a Pulitzer. Um and I guess I, I would try Louise Gluck, her book, The Wild Iris, which is a wonderful book. So those are three that I, at the moment, have been infatuated with and crazy about. And classical poetry. And because the, the Bible, there's a lot of, you know, magnificent poetry in, the, in classic religious text. Yes. You know, I mean, yes. For those the of us songs. who play in that arena. But yeah. also... Do you have a favorite classic, you know, you know, 18th century that we've all studied in college and or 19th century poets? Yep, I would say John Donne, mm-hmm. whose work was lost, just discovered in say the maybe 1930, a British poet who was writing right after Shakespeare, um, fantastic poet. Who's writing poetry now, Jeannie? Is it uh, a lot of younger people getting into this, or it's still predominantly, or or is it 
people who've been around the block a couple of times and can perhaps have life experience to share. No, I think it's younger people and older people, and I think it's written word and spoken word, and I think some of it goes in the direction of rap, and some of it, you know, it's a, it, there's a sense in which I think the field of poetry, what it is, it's no longer just written, it's also spoken, and those are the younger people who are doing that. But we have a lot of younger people also at the university who are writing books on paper. But you mentioned rap. I mean, music, uh, composers, some of the great composers, as well as, you know, it's all poetry. It's really poetry, isn't it? Set to music. Uh, rap, yeah, yeah, it, it really is poetry. I mean, it's it's heavily rhymed right. poetry. And there's yeah. a certain rhythm and and, mm-hmm. and, and I, I would imagine that if you look at it that way, I mean, you can talk about some of the classic, I would imagine, great American songbook composers. Cole Porter just, just jumps into my mind, who had a way with language where they would rhyme certain things. I mean, they put it to music, but the lyric itself is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there has been a return in the last 10 years to rhythm and um, to rhyme. Right. So we have about two minutes left in this segment. Well, you know, if, if people are looking, listening out there and they're fantasizing, gee, I would love to write poetry. I've always been fascinated by poetry, but I'm kind of scared. How do I get, get started? What, what advice would you give to those people? I would say read a lot of poetry. I would say get a book, which is called Western Wind, which is the best beginning book on poetry that I know. It is written by John Frederick Nims. You can find it online. You can go through Amazon if you want to. Don't get a new copy. Get an old copy because a new it's a textbook. So that means it costs a fortune if you get a new, the latest edition. You don't need the latest edition. Get one that's older and that's less expensive and that's a good used book and read it. And go from there. And try it. Try writing. You know, show it to people. See what they say. So it's the old story, just go out and start. And go see out what and start. We've been talking with Dr. Uh, Jeannie Walker, professor of, uh, in the English department at the University of Delaware, down the street in Delaware, and also with the Seattle Pacific University's Low Residency Master of Fine Arts program on the art of poetry. And your book, again, Helping the Morning New and Selective Poems, published in 2014, available at Amazon and hopefully most of the major bookstores. And real fast, your website to get in touch with you again is what? Um, my email address is jwalker at udel for the University of Delaware dot edu. And feel free to email me. Jeannie, thank you very much. This has been great. Thank you for giving us the gift of your gift of the poem and uh, continued success in all of your teaching and uh, have fun if you go back to Alaska again. But good luck. Thank you very Thank you. It's thank you for being wonderful. a guest here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. We're going to be back. We're going to shift gears um, a little bit from sort of like the ethereal to sort of like economics and deal with some issues dealing with insurance and uh, continuing care retirement communities and placement and some of the tips about that. And we'll be doing that um, right after our musical bridge today, a little Aretha Franklin to 
break up the monotony of being stuck in traffic. Welcome back to today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio, and we're going to be starting our second segment. But first, a reminder that we're coming to you from WWDB AM860 here in Greater Philadelphia, and we're streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And again, Boomer Generation Radio, you can reach us on the Facebook page and Boomer Generation Radio at gmail.com, and the shows are podcast on JewishSacredAging.com. We are very well, happy to welcome back to the studio Andrew Becker, a financial services professional based in Cherry Hill. And if I'm not mistaken, and we hope through the magic of electronics, Meredith Baker, the executive director of Premier Cadbury CCRC, also in Cherry Hill. Meredith, are you there? Yes, I am here. Hey, it's always, hey. it's always good to know that electronics <laughs> works. <laughs> Thanks, AJ. So, uh, um, yes. Welcome. 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 First of all, tell me, um, Cadbury, describe to me what Cadbury, Premier Cadbury facility is in Cherry Hill. Sure. 
Premier Cadbury is located on the west side of Cherry Hill, Hill, right by the Cherry Hill Mall. We are known as a continuing care retirement community, or a CCRC, which means we offer uh, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and skilled nursing, both for subacute rehab and for long-term care, right here on the campus, all under one roof. And uh, what we want to talk a little bit about today is some of the dynamics of um, personal financial challenges. A family needs to make a decision. Uh, They need to place someone in a facility, assisted living facility, let's say. They'll walk into you, Andrew, and say, uh, how do I do this? How do I pay for this? What are the... What are the parameters? I, I, all of a sudden, we had to do this. We never th- we thought we had years to go before we had to do this. Talk to me, and then you know, from your perspective, and then Meredith, from when that family sits in your office across from you, what are some of the questions that they ask, or what are some of the questions they should be asking? Mm-hmm. Well, wh- where to begin? Um, I think when they speak to me and they're in the situation that you described, I hope that I've had a conversation with them before that point, mm-hmm. and then we can talk about planning well into the future, but if, if they haven't, there's a few ways that they could pay for it. I mean, certainly if they have the means, they can go private pay, although Meredith can talk to you about the cost and it, it, it's exorbitant uh, or it can be. They can also, again, hopefully they have private insurance. If not, there are different kinds of public insurance. We talked about last time um, Medicaid being sort of the option of last resort, but one that I think a lot of people end up having to um, rely on. In the end, the, the, how, the Medicare. So there's a popular conception. Well, I'm 69 and 78. Medicare will pay for this. Me- Medicare will not pay for it. Medicare will pay for it on a very limited basis and within very few parameters, and certainly not for the long term. In fact, Meredith is probably better than I am in talking about what Medicare will cover, and then I can right. talk about what Medicaid and private insurance yes. can cover. In general, Medicare does not pay for people to live. So there is. <laughs> well, that's thank you. Yes. So Medicare itself is not paying for any type of residential living, um, including assisted living. Assisted living traditionally is a private pay market. In the state of New Jersey, um, you can potentially qualify for what is known as a Medicaid waiver for assisted living. In Pennsylvania, they do not offer that type of public assistance. Ah, so first stop. One of the things, and I think last time Andrew was here, you mentioned this, but this is really important, that people, as they begin to make plans or even think about this, really have to check the laws, correct, of their local, of the state. Correct. There's the federal programs that are available to seniors and they're statewide. Medicare is a federally funded and run program as opposed to Medicaid, which is a combination of federal and state government with the majority of the, um, you know, the states controlling what is in their programs or not included in their programs. So this can get, can this get messy for the consumer? Um, most of the time when I meet with people, unfortunately, they, it's a fragmented healthcare system at best, mm-hmm. um, up to and including senior related issues as well. So people oftentimes come when I meet with them and are a little bit either misinformed or have understood something to be not 100% accurate. They've gotten pieces of it, but don't understand the complete picture or the complete story. 
Um, and that's for not only assisted living, but for what their benefit is as well for subacute rehab and then potentially long-term care placement. So, Andrew, talk to me, because you alluded to this the last time you were here several months ago in, this, in the springtime. What's the current status uh, of, because uh, when I go out and do workshops on this, this always comes up. What's the current status of long-term care insurance? It's available. Uh, it's There's a lot of different ways to, to come at it. Many people find that it's a little bit too expensive to have a standalone policy. Um, that's generally the best way to go uh, in, in my recommendation. But if you can't do that, there are now hybrid policies where people can buy an amount of life insurance that includes either the ability to use some percentage, you know, sometimes 80, 90 percent of the death benefit that you're purchasing towards long-term care on a, you know, again, within some parameters. There's also a long-term care waiver. So you can purchase long-term or rather life insurance that has a long-term care waiver. So let's say you wanted to buy half a million dollars of death benefit. You may also be able to purchase another, say, $300,000 just in long-term care coverage. It doesn't work. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different m- mechanisms to do it. Some policies will pay on an indemnity basis. So they'll pay the facility directly, some places will say, as long as you've qualified uh, medically, you've been diagnosed as lo- losing to what, what we call the ADLs, the activities of daily yeah, living, right, right. then they'll just start writing you a check for a percentage. Some of them are reimbursement policies. They're, they work a lot of different ways. Um, so we just look at everybody's individual situation and we do that. And, and I just want to go back to the Medicaid question for right, a moment right, too. Sure, and I'll sure. just say, whereas the government, the federal government had made a decision, I guess in the 1960s, saying we'll provide some form of health care for senior citizens, um, Medicaid is sort of, you know, what they'll do in terms of long-term care. It's almost like the government saying, we'll do it as a, as a, you know, sort of option of last resort, but they're trying to incentivize it through certain kinds of tax policies and things to really encourage people to look for their own private solutions to the problem. So, you know, when you buy long-term care insurance, the premiums that you pay, um, count towards the qualification for medical expenses. And so you can take them off of your taxes within certain, and, you know, you have to talk to your own tax preparer, but, you know, it goes towards the non-reimbursed medical expenses, and, you know, depending on how old you are, you can uh, deduct more and more of the expenses as you go. So uh, the older you get, just to pick up on what you just said, if, there's a real difference of buying one of these policies when I'm 50 as opposed to when I'm 75. Right, and I actually brought the numbers, and I, I'll also say that you can buy it, you know, say you buy it at age 40 uh, or under, you can only you can only deduct $390 annually towards the premiums. But you, as you age, even if the premiums stay the same, the amount that you can deduct of the premium you're paying goes up. That's for, that's for the, you're talking about the Medicaid? What are you talking about? I'm talking about if you purchase long-term care insurance, long-term then care you insurance. can deduct the premiums that you're paying from your taxes. They, now, they go but, and I've that. heard people in, as late as this weekend in, in a workshop say that, that the numbers of companies that are actually writing long-term care insurance have, have diminished. That's true. Is that because the, the, just the, there's just so many of us getting older that it's just, they're paying out too much or it's, it's not profitable anymore? Some, somewhere in the middle. I think, I think, you know, in the 80s and 90s is when you really started to see an explosion of the availability. And I don't think anybody, even actuaries who do good work, necessarily anticipated the explosion in inflation of the cost of long-term care. So, right, it became very expensive to provide this coverage. So a lot of people who bought policies and did the right thing and thought they were protected found out either that the policy would require a gigantic additional payment in order to stay in force or they just simply couldn't afford it or the policy wasn't there anymore. So the companies that have stayed in business have retooled the policies, have repriced the policies. And so what you have now is a lot more solid, a lot more reliable. Um, but it's true there's only a handful of companies that still sell standalone 
long-term care policies. It's a challenge to get sick in this country right now and pay for it because you're really paying. You're, you really are paying most of it out of your pocket, aren't you? Unfortunately, and, and and that's how do people begin? You know, you you deal with financial services, Meredith. You deal with you're running a, a facility, so you must get these people. I would imagine, in, and I've dealt with them as clergy. You know, as clergy in another perspective. But just come with their wits end. I mean, I, I, how do I do this? How do I, how do I pay for this? How do I even manage taking care of someone who I love, but there's only a finite amount of money that's available? What happens? What happens? Correct. So it depends on what community you ultimately select and where you're entering into the continuum of senior living services in the arena. Um, for some, you may enter purely as a rental agreement. For some, you may enter into a contractual agreement, um, depending on what um, services are available. For example, where I'm currently at, um, it is a rental agreement, meaning that there is no big upfront fees, um, but as you age in place, you have additional resources here. Um, some other CCRCs will have a you know, what they consider a buy-in or a large upfront fee, but then it also, in some regards, acts in some ways as a long-term care policy. That's one avenue. Another avenue is um, people look at various communities, um, in particular assisted living, and decide based on, it can be based on price and what types of services are being offered at what type of price. Um, and they also, in, at least in the state of New Jersey, oftentimes will be asking, um, what about Medicaid and how does that play in to their decision? Um, ultimately, um, the, what may happen to some people is that as they age in place, particularly in the assisted living arena, um, if they are either unable to get a Medicaid waiver um, or if they need additional levels of care, they sometimes will move into a nursing um, home environment on Medicaid, um, which will help cover their expense of, of senior living, of long-term care, provided that they qualify for that level of care. And Medicaid takes a while to get somebody qualified for Medicaid, does it, does it not? It takes um, – I generally – it can take – Six months to a year, a lot of it is also dependent upon the county. You know, for example, if it's Camden County versus Burlington County versus Salem County, um, it really does depend. Um, and oftentimes, those things do need to be planned ahead of time. Um, if not, sometimes it's, you will be able to find a community that does accept uh, Medicaid pending for skilled nursing. Um, which is actually something that my community is doing right now, where they can come in as long as, you know, that they have made efforts to um, apply for Medicaid, mm -hmm. uh, which is a little bit harder to find these days. Not everyone is as willing to, to go ahead and extend that offer to people. Um, there are resources, though, that are available to help people plan for Medicaid application. People can do it on their own, but it is a rather lengthy and complicated um, procedure to do. So there are elder care attorneys that will assist people um, in applying, making a Medicaid application. Um, there are, um, there's other organizations that are also out there that only do Medicaid applications to assist people if in fact they need that. 
But the key to all of this is really planning ahead of time and not waiting, if at all possible, for um, to be in a dire situation where you have to make decisions um, that sometimes will become financially driven as opposed to selecting the community that you that best fits your needs. We want to come back and um, talk about this last point that you made because I think it's absolutely crucial about the, the planning, when to start the plan, how to start the plan, how to even organize resources um, because given the statistics and given what all of us see in our own particular professions and callings, this is only going to increase this 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 issue of um, making these decisions. We're with Andrew Becker, a financial services professional in Cherry Hill, and Meredith Becker, executive director of Premier Cadbury CCRC, also located in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And we'll be right back with Andrew and Meredith to talk about this planning uh, issue and some of the other things involved with this, these very, very serious decisions that so many of our people, many people that you know, are having to make and probably will have to make in the future. We'll do so, but first, a word from our friends down the street in Kennett Square at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio was brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services in eight states that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Please join us in together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to our second segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. We are with Andrew Becker, financial services professional in Cherry Hill, and Meredith Becker, executive director of Premier Cadbury uh, community located also in Cherry Hill. Andrew, but, and when we were listening to the, our, pe- our friends at Kendall, you mentioned a, a rather staggering statistic that <laughs> is frightening in its own right. What is that, that 70% figure? Uh, about 70% of people who reach age 65 will require some sort of long-term care at some point in their life going forward. Yes, that, that's a frightening. I mean, with 76 million baby boomers, all of whom now are over the age of 50, the first wave of the boomers now hitting 70, 71. Um, this is not theoretical anymore. It's real. <laughs> it's very, very real. And um, I would venture to say uh, the majority of boomers have, have not planned, have, be, have not begun to think about this and tragically wait until an emergency or some, or they have to make a decision, which, as you know, is the worst time to make a decision is when you're under crisis. I'm afraid it's true, and it affects, you know, not just their own individual assets. There may be somebody who has an interest in a business, and maybe affects the business. Now there's a fire sale or something like that, or you know, it's it's the number one destroyer of the wealth that we build up over a lifetime. So you hate to see somebody who's worked for decades and done the right thing for decades and saved and invested, and now it's going to all be gone, you know, in, in a relatively short period. Of time. Right, so the, the number one destroyer of of, of your retirement nest egg. Is medical expenses. Is, is, well, specifically long-term care expenses. Long-term care expenses. Mm-hmm. How does some family who has no knowledge of money or they're living and all of a sudden an emergency happens, how do they begin to, to plan when they just, it's, it's a, fa- it's, it's out there. It's somewhere, someday, someday we'll worry about it. Well, I mean, what I try to do when I meet with the family is bring the future into the present. So I may ask a question like that. You know, I may meet with a healthy couple 
uh, you know, you, you pick the age, somebody 55 years old, and I say, what, what happens if, heaven forbid, you find yourself needing long-term care? Because while we're talking specifically about the senior population, it's true, and Meredith has seen it in her, in her experience, it's true that sometimes people re- acquire a permanent disability or, or a long-term illness that requires long-term care well in advance of when they think they're going to need, quote-unquote, a, a oh, nursing yeah. home. Oh, yeah. So I try to bring that future into the present and say, what has happened in your life if, if this is going on right now and sort of get them to think about it like it's now or like it was 90 days ago and then get into the solutions. How do we, how do we protect it? So my approach is to then, I look under all the couch cushions if I can with the family, I go over everything with a fine tooth comb, many things that I don't personally sell, you know, lines of insurance like their car insurance, their homeowner's insurance. Can we find any money somewhere to start, you know, something is better than nothing. So I, I may have solutions for people that will at least offset the cost of nursing care or long-term care uh, later on, if not cover the entire amount later on. So we just try and, you know, kind of prolong the time that they'll be able to be in control of their own decision. Because w- one other thing we haven't discussed is that if you go into a facility on private pay or with your own private insurance, you have quite a lot of choice and quite a lot of options. If you go in on Medicare – or rather, I'm sorry, on Medicaid – you lose almost all of that choice. Right, I know that. So, you know, this is, it's not just, it, it, it is certainly a question of making sure that we leave something for our families, but it's also a question of making sure that the person who needs the care can get the kind of care that they want and that their family thinks is best. No, the, the, there's a certain, you know, speaking as a clergy person, there is a certain moral bankruptcy dealing with the healthcare system at the end of life or, or long-term care concerns, as you just pointed out. I mean, there's a difference in when somebody is a medic, Cade patient as opposed to somebody who, to be blunt about it, can afford it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and by the and it's interesting that nobody's talking about it politically, but there really is a, a, a several tiered, tiered system. Meredith, when you, when you have families coming in to talk to you about, they're looking at the community, what, you know, what are some of the basic questions that, that, that a family is going to ask you? I mean, the, the ambiance, the activities, the food, the nursing care. And, the, and there's a difference, obviously, between the, the independent part and the skilled nursing part. Correct. So you're correct with all of these questions that you're bringing to the forefront. But also what's important is to see beyond the fancy chandelier and see about the type of services and care and happiness that is going on in that community. For example, when you're there on a visit, um, what are you observing? Are um, employees seem to be personable and generally happy as they're walking around? Are they greeting residents? Do residents seem to be engaged? Um, How is the overall feel of your experience while you're there? People need to get a good sense and they need to basically get security or the feeling of security that you're going to be able to help and take care of their loved one uh, when they're not there. They're entrusting the most, quote, unquote, valuable possession that they have at that point, which is their parent to you. Go ahead. So when people come in, what they should be looking for, um, again, would be, What's your, you know, how, how's the staffing pattern? Um, do you have enough adequate programming? Um, do you have, can my parent um, age in place? And if so, how? How does that happen? Um, are you able to provide what level of care at that particular community that you're looking for? Um, do you welcome family involvement? How accessible is the administration, you know, of that community? 
um, how transparent are things um, because ultimately you need to feel confident in the community that you have selected for your loved one. What's the greatest change taking place within your industry, Meredith, right now? Um, I'm going to be honest with you and tell you it is getting ready for the boomers. I think the expectation of what the boomers will be bringing um, versus what the boomers may be able to afford um, <laughs> are two very different ends of the spectrum. And I think that you're going to see a big change in senior living as to how we're currently doing it um, and what we're providing um, and what the expectation of the next generation will be. Are you seeing a, an uptick in um, – it's probably the wrong word – I've talked to people in in your industry, and they say, well, that people are not coming to us as young as they used to. They're really delaying, delaying, delaying because we're living longer, living healthier, and people want to push this decision off as long as possible. Are you seeing that? Are are the demographics changing? Yep. What I'm seeing is that um, the independent living of today was probably um, the assisted living you know, of you know, 10 years ago, assisted living is looking more like nursing, and nursing is more chronically ill individuals. And for the exact reasons that you mentioned is that people are living or desiring to live at home for as long as they possibly can. And what typically um, has somebody deciding that at, at home isn't the best option anymore is usually due to either a um, chronic diagnosis or illness that they can't maintain at the home anymore uh, or an acute episode, um, something that they haven't planned for that makes it impossible for them to return to their home. So they start seeking other options. A lot of people will tell you that they never planned to either be in a senior living or long-term care environment, nor did they ever plan to either place a loved one in a senior living or long-term care environment. So with that comes the whole planning aspect as well as a whole emotional aspect that one was not really anticipating on experiencing. One of the one of the challenges that really is beginning to hit the boomers, and this comes up a lot when I go out and for workshops, and this is this this explosion in dementia and Alzheimer's care. And I, I, before we start running out of time, because we only have about three or four minutes, could you both of you just talk to me about the and because this can last for years and years and years and years and years, the difference of how how one people pay for this. I mean, it, it, it's it's staggering. Talk about the, you know, Angie, when you're talking about this is the key way that people lose their finances. This is a horrible journey. Yes, it is. And Meredith will talk to you, I think, about the mechanics of what really is happening to the person and to their family, um, and, and what it means to care for them. But I'll just I'll just mention. Um, some of the kind of bells and whistles on on the long term care policies that are existed you know that 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 have endured um, sort of allow for that or account for it um, one of the one of the things that we do is you know you may choose a facility only policy in which case you need to have it medically necessary that you live in an assisted living or that you live in a skilled nursing facility or something along those lines but we also offer what we call home and community based care so if it's somebody who is physically healthy but they need some sort of supervision or care, you know, in the home or in the community, if they need respite care for the family members, if there's some sort of alternative to being in a facility, our policies will pay for that as well, or many policies will pay for that as well. Um, but you have to kind of check that box and know that it's there. Um, the other thing is when you buy long-term care, 
you decide, you know, or certainly your, your, your wallet decides, but you can purchase a period of anywhere between two and six years to the lifetime of care. And so you're creating a pool of benefits for yourself. It's not like, um, you go in at such and such age and then you're covered right. forever. So you can decide that and you can say, you know, if I anticipate this sort of an issue, then you, you know. Meredith, we have a, a minute left. Sure. So what I would say is as you're looking for memory care specifically, look for a community that you, number one, can afford. You are aware of what levels of care are available to you. Um, Also see if they are able to offer uh, Medicaid waiver in assisted living if you're in the state of New Jersey in memory care, as we do here at Premier Cadbury. Um, And unfortunately, eventually, as the disease progresses, one of two things sometimes will occur, which is that you, the individual who is afflicted with the disease will end up on hospice care in a memory care um, setting and or could be uh, eventually moved from the assisted living environment depending on the individual's situation and into a long-term care slash nursing home environment if that is what is needed, a higher level of care than what could be required in an assisted living environment. So so you have to be prepared and aware of both what could happen in terms of location of the individual as well as what the financial aspects are and making sure that you plan ahead because, as you said, uh, with Alzheimer's or dementia-related illness, it can last for a very long time. Thank you, Meredith. This is – it's frightening, but, again, the message continuing is talk to people, start planning, you never know. Andrew Becker, financial services professional in Cherry Hill, and Meredith Becker, executive director of Premier Cadbury in Cherry Hill. Thank you very much for a lot of information um, on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. Thank you very much for joining us, Meredith, Andrew, to all of you. Thank you very much for joining us. Take care, everybody. Have a great week. Stay safe.